0: Welcome aboard the battleship pretension. I am Tyler Smith and thank you for listening. David is not here today. He is out of town celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, but I will bring in his replacement. Yeah, that's right. I'm calling it. He's out. Who are we bringing in? He was here last week, and he was kind enough to, to fill in for David this week. It is uh, our, what's what's our term for you, editor-at-large? I think so. Nice. Scott Nye. Scott, how you doing? Good. I just never left from last week.
1: I've just been here, sitting in this room. It
0: has been off-putting, yes. Well, I was going to tr- do this alone. I
1: tried to just stay out of sight, but every now and then I catch you looking over and be like, what, <laughs> what's this
0: guy? Who's that guy huddled in the corner yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> You would be like, you know, you'd be behind a curtain, right? but I could still see your shoes. I do have big feet. It's a problem. (laughs) You and your big clown feet? Basically. What size shoe do you wear? Size 13.
1: 13? Yeah, it's right on the edge before you have to special order shoes. Wow. So I'm very pleased that I stopped growing at that point. Let me see your feet right now. All right. That's one.
0: Son of a bitch. That is a representative sample of my feet. Wow. The other one, half the size. (laughs) Um, That's interesting. I don't think I ever knew that. Eh, It doesn't stand out unless you point it out, usually. People usually look at people's feet. Yeah, I topped out at ten and a half. You know what? As much as I may hate so many things about myself, (laughs) uh, I'm okay with my shoe size, and I'm okay with my height. Five, ten, ten and a half shoe. Not terrible. Standard issue male human. Absolutely. <laughs> That's how, how strange that I'm the things I'm totally satisfied with are the are completely average. So, OK, before we jump into things, uh, this episode is sponsored by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international and classic films. Everyday movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. There are a lot of great movies available right now, among them Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, the comedy melodrama in which the little tramp finds and takes care of an abandoned boy. This is a marvelous film filled with laughs and a lot of heart. Have you ever seen The Kid? I have, but it's been a while, but I loved it. Yes, Yes. I loved it. And here's a fun fact, BP fun fact. The Kid is played by Jackie Coogan. That's a true fact. Who would then go on to play Uncle Fester on Adam's Family. I did not actually know that. And would then go on to be the grandfather of friend of the show, Keith Coogan. I always forget about that. Yes. You have a small connection. Small connection to Charlie Chaplin, but I, you know what? I like to think he's a friend of the show now. There you go. He would like the show. I think I'm not so sure about that. I don't think so either. (laughs) (laughs) What podcast do you think he would like cereal? He'd probably like
1: cereal. Everybody No, that'd be too like commercialist and exploitative. He was like part communist. He sure was.
0: I wrote a paper about that. There you go. Um, yeah, I guess, let's see. I guess he'd like anything by like the young Turks. Yeah. Or something like that. I Let's don't know if that. they have a podcast. I know they have a, a video show. I don't know. I guess he'd like that. But he's still, in theory, like comedy, you know? Yeah. Probably. Oh, you know what? He'd like comedy and everything else. Jimmy Dore's
1: show. I haven't heard. listened to it, but I'm sure me and Charlie would love it. Absolutely. Are you talking about my cat? Well, I know he loves it. Absolutely. He was raving as soon as like. I mean, we've talked to each other all week since I've been here. <laughs> Got to know each other.
0: He'd probably take a swipe at you. <laughs> um, he, doesn't li- he doesn't like people getting too close. Uh, okay. So... Um, Right. Uh so I'll say this, along with uh with Mubi in general, there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. Listener, that includes you. You can try Mubi for free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash battleship to redeem now. That's one free month. So very exciting. I was talking uh I had basically two Thanksgivings this year. Um thursday and friday we're recording this on the friday and so today we went and had lunch and dinner basically hung out all day with relatives that jen didn't really know she had until uh, a couple months ago like were they so, lost somewhere at sea yeah and they just they just pulled into port <laughs> oh it's wow. a good thing we live by the sea <laughs> just never would have found them um but uh, yeah, like one of those like second and third cousins yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and it turned out to be a whole lot of fun. But we actually talked a lot about uh, it started talking about uh, restaurants and how there are some restaurants where they say there is no menu. The The chef is merely going to make something, put it in front of you, and that is your meal for the night. I went to a restaurant like that in Mexico a couple weeks ago. Was it fun? It was great. It's And we just and we talked about the and we've talked about this with movie before that it just it seems counterintuitive, like only 30 movies. But the the fact of something being curated, the fact of here, this is what we think is good. You are now welcome to watch it as opposed to spending, in my case, (laughs) 40 minutes looking on Netflix, realizing there's a lot of things I'm interested in, but not being able to pick just one. That's the problem it is strange and it's it's like I said it's very counterintuitive so I like what Mubi is doing and I and I certainly appreciate the fact that they sponsored us and I uh, it's very exciting being par- uh, partnered with them now then for our uh, top of the show discussion which we I guess we don't refer to that uh, in that way uh, on the show but whatever we're, we're you know I'm feeling kind of loosey goosey it's an off week yeah yeah David's not here I run things the way I want to David. there you go all right the big movie news this week. News. I guess news isn't the word for it. Developments. Sure. Whatever you want to say. Either way, the thing... The talk the, of the town. The talk of, the, of everything. There were two big trailers this uh, this week. The first was Jurassic World, and the second was Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Wakes Up. They need to change that title. I feel yeah. a small tweak, <laughs> like it's close. Yeah. It does sound a little... A little, a little
1: casual. yeah.
0: <laughs> the Force wakes up, uh,
1: pushes, snooze, yeah. rolls over, goes back to bed. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> you set the alarm a little
0: bit earlier than you actually want to get exactly, up. You exactly. Know, just for those situations. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, so we wanted to talk briefly about those trailers. Now, I know that I've said that uh, uh, in the past, I try not to watch trailers, but I will say that when it is something like Jurassic World or the new Star Wars... The trailer itself is something of a cultural phenomenon, and people are just going to be describing it all week. Exactly, so you might as well yeah. watch might the as damn well. Thing. Um And so, uh, so we're going to talk very briefly about these trailers before we move into the topic proper. Propic, the propic or the topic. <laughs> I like propic. All right, all right, everybody. Um, so there's the top of the show discussion, and then the propic. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, what did, we'll start with Jurassic world. It came out, uh, that trailer came out first. Uh, what did you, how did you respond to that trailer? I started out actually pretty into it. I'm not like the
1: biggest Jurassic park fan. I like yeah. the first one. All right. Yeah. Um, and then the other two I saw like once and barely remember. Yeah. Um, but so I like the whole part where they're going into the, in the theme parks open. That's kind of the hook of mm-hmm. the movie, it seems. Um, and it's kind of got like a sea world vibe going on kind of a zoo vibe going on. Yeah. And I liked all that stuff. And then they get in this whole thing where they've developed a new dinosaur mm-hmm. and it turns out just to be the same story as the other ones where, you know, something breaks down, the dinosaurs run loose. Mm-hmm. And then Chris Pratt seems like oddly uncharismatic for him.
0: Yeah. I, uh, maybe they're just showing us like the serious It's entirely part. possible. It does seem odd that... Uh, Of all the characters that they want to sort of echo with Chris Pratt, it's the Bob Peck, Robert Muldoon character (laughs) from the first film. Um, Yeah, I was kind of the same way, uh, especially more than anything. I was excited of like, okay, all we've all we've done so far is seen things go wrong. Yeah, admittedly, things go wrong here, but it is kind of neat to think, all right, John Hammond's vision has been realized. Yeah, this is what. Jurassic Park, then now Jurassic World. This is what it was always meant to be. And I don't know. And so I feel like I'm going to it. It kind of allows you the sense of wonder that the first film did. Yeah. Which because is, you have a different entry point. Exactly. And as somebody like myself who loves uh, like Disneyland yeah, and, and will be going to Disney World uh, in January. Have you ever been before? I have twice, okay. but not for uh, 11 years. You'll be seeing it anew just like people exactly, in Jurassic World. Exactly let's hope that the pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean doesn't break Caribbean doesn't break down. The pirates eat the tourists. Um, cause they genetically altered those pirates. Oh boy. Things so, have changed. But yeah. Uh, and, and I enjoyed seeing a lot of that and you know what? I'm even okay with the genetically modified dinosaur because what I heard, of, what I heard, and of course it's, Hard to know if this is officially true or how hard they hit it. Right. It's that Jurassic World's been open for a while, and the public has grown rather bored with it at this point.
1: Yeah, I've heard them
0: some talk of that. I kind of love that, yeah, the I idea d- of that. I don't know if the answer, then, is to build a new dinosaur, though. But And that's, I agree, but maybe that's the idea, is in an attempt to... In an attempt to get people interested again, they just sort of cast a wide net of ideas. They throw a lot of stuff at the wall and <laughs> see what sticks. And uh, maybe this uh, genetically modified dinosaur is something that didn't.
1: Yeah, this all sounds like what the movie makers are thinking, though, too. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> it's, these people are bored of T-Rexes. Well, we're probably not, you know. Yeah. t Rexes are pretty
0: cool. Yeah, they, they have their moments. Yeah. You know what I want to see? I want to see another Dilophosaurus. We only saw it once. I don't even know what that is. That's the one that killed Wayne Knight. Oh, okay. Spoilers. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. Get an army of those spitting venom at people. That'd be great. Yeah. I don't know. It, it always bothered me that it makes one appearance and it's like, this is a, first off, it's a small dinosaur. I like that. So it can show up in, in, you know, different contexts and it spits venom and it's got, and they, and they added that fan and it's got the crests in it. Is that not natural to that dinosaur? Uh, no, it is not. And I, and I don't think, uh, the, um, and it's, de- I think it's been debated whether or not it actually spit any kind of venom. Well, yeah. the only thing they knew is that it was small, although not even that small. <laughs> and it had those crests on its, uh, on its, skull. All right. but, uh, but yeah. And the thing that gets me is that, so if the movie's bad, it's bad. We'll see how it goes, right. but I am nonetheless optimistic for it. I'm excited for it. And it look, it at least looks like it has kind of the sense of grandeur that the original had. It could. Uh, it I'm c- very cautious about it. I didn't yeah. like safety, not guaranteed the director's last film. So that's part of it. And you know what? I didn't see it. I feel like maybe that would make a difference. You might be better off. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I didn't like it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And the, uh, but what's interesting is how many people saw the trailer and were just immediately down on it. Yeah. And I just thought like, what are we clinging to? I know you're cl- <laughs> the third film was bad, right? The second film, aside from Pete Postlethwaite, also pretty bad. That's what I recall.
1: And, uh, it's cool seeing the dinosaurs like in a city environment, I think it's been so long since I've seen it that I barely remember anything,
0: I guess it, uh, that, but everything about the T-Rex in San Diego just seemed like perfunctory, almost okay. like they felt, Hey, wouldn't it be neat if, you know, wound up in a city or something, <laughs> let's do that. It, just, it felt like such an, I mean, people are, when I, when I mention it, people are surprised that Spielberg directed the second film. Oh, yeah. Big time. It felt like such a, like he phoned 97 it. 97
1: was an off year for him
0: all around. Well, that was Amistad. Right? Yeah. Which I,
1: I mean, I like I it all. Seen right. It in so long, but it's but yeah. not
0: top tier by any yeah. means. It's odd that, I mean, there have been, he will often do two movies in one year. Yeah. Uh, 93, he did Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. I'd say that's a win. Yeah. Uh, 97, he did Amistad and uh, Lost World Jurassic Park. <laughs> Not so much. Let's give that a 35 to 40% uh, <laughs> out of 100. And then 2005, he did War of the Worlds in Munich. I yeah. think that's a win. Yeah. Uh, maybe even my favorite of the three, frankly. Oh. Um, I do think Munich is pretty amazing. But, no, that might be my favorite of the three as well, come to think of it. but uh, But yeah, and so part of me just thinks like, what I think what people are ultimately comparing this to it's not the third film it's not the second film it might not even be the first film i think they're comparing it to their memory of the first oh yeah
1: that's always the case yeah and i've seen a lot of complaints about the effects work too which is probably unfinished so like yeah those kind of complaints always drive me crazy when it's like trailers or promo reels or something and here's a
0: here's here's a question the you mentioned the sea world part which i actually enjoyed yeah um do you think the fact that they're wheeling a shark out and then having that... Uh, I don't remember the name of the dinosaur that, Some that jumps out. big damn sea monster. Yeah. That it... <laughs> They're basically monsters. Yeah, right? Come on, uh, that it jumps out and he's. Do you think that might? Because there's no reason that has to be a shark, except maybe as a reference to like, oh, you think Jaws is bad? I would say, yeah. That it could just, also be a reference to jumping the shark. You think? I've
1: seen some people make that joke. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know how conscious that is on the part of the filmmakers. Okay. I think it's just like you think sharks are bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I. What and I size too. You know, yeah. sharks
0: are pretty sizable things. Which is one of the reasons why. Did you ever see Orca, the killer whale? No. All right. Do I recommend that? Hang on now. <laughs> you know what? Richard Harris is turning in surprisingly good work. If you have to question it, I'd say you probably do recommend it. Well, it's, you, you think I probably do recommend yeah. it. Okay. That's interesting. Well, cause it's called Orca, the killer whale. Like it'd be pretty easy to toss it off. But if you're, you're having any hesitation, he has a really good performance right. in it. And, and, it, but it's, it's, I'll say this, the film is ridiculous, I but would in, imagine. in kind of the best way. Yeah, that's all right. But one of the things that it does is, uh, it's obviously a, like so many other movies in the late seventies, early eighties was just a ripoff of jaws. Right. Um, but what happens in this one (laughs) is, uh, early on a character, uh, is going, is going to be attacked by a shark. Okay. And then the kill, and then Orca, the killer whale kills that shark. Wow. Obviously as a way of saying, right. You think this thing's bad. Yeah. Just wait until you see Orca (laughs) another (laughs) four uh, four letter title. I mean, in the case of Jurassic
1: park, the, Jurassic World, the shark's already dead. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not quite the same. Wouldn't it be weird if you saw the if it was like just or flapping just, around? Yeah, they them? just threw it to the monster
0: like they do with the seals and fish. Exact Oh boy, <laughs> but how would they do that with like a big slingshot or a crane or something? I don't know. Oh boy, man, why can't they let us run movies? You know, wouldn't <laughs> maybe the T Rex can throw it to the?
1: Sea. Oh, <laughs> that'd be a trick. <laughs> People would show up for that.
0: You know they've they've yet to make a good movie. Well, maybe a movie <laughs> can't be made. A good movie can't be made about this. But like, there's there's only been like straight to video movies about megalodon. What is a megalodon? It's uh it's a prehistoric shark. Okay. Um, that was I don't know. I think it was like sixty feet long. Okay. Something like that. It was huge. Right. And there have been a number of. Uh, in, I think, the 90s, there was a guy named, I think, Steve Alton who did like a a, a three book series called Meg. Okay. And, uh, and it's about a, a megalodon that, uh, surfaces. Right. That the, the idea that they're deep in the ocean, but then something causes it to rise right. to the surface. And it's unkillable, Scott. You know? <laughs> and there are three books. Yeah. That's how unkillable it is. Exactly. It's a different one in each book, though. Nah, that's too bad. Um, but yeah. So, uh, Sorry, okay, we can move on. (laughs) Um, and we will move on to the next trailer, which was Star Wars Episode 7 The Force Awakens. Now, you just saw this trailer today. I, well, everybody, I guess everybody did, but you just saw (laughs) it like right now, yeah, a few minutes ago. And your first instinct was what? Very positive, very positive. But
1: I am, you know, I grew up on Star Wars big time, I was very into it in grade school. Um, so it's basically just Ripping on iconography, so of course that's going to work for me. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Uh, Yeah, and uh, me too, to a point. Okay. Um, I do think the the teaser is very well put together. It shows X-Wings, TIE Fighters, Stormtroopers, Deserts, and the Millennium Falcon. What more do you need? What more do you need? I I cannot think... I almost, it almost feels like there just should have been in true like Hitchcockian form, (laughs) just there's J.J. Abrams just walking through a cantina (laughs) and just saying, hello, I'm J.J. Abrams. If you'd like to know what happened here, oh my, it's very amazing. (laughs) Um, I'll tell you what didn't happen here. And then he just talks all about the prequels. Right. Um, Because that seems to be what this is, is just the assurance that this is, these are not the prequels.
1: There is, and other people have said this, the weird lightsaber they're introducing that has the... There's like a broadsword kind of thing. That's a very prequel idea.
0: Man, it sure is. Okay. Uh, I was, I said this on an, on an episode recently. I would like to do an episode and oddly enough, I feel like you would be a good guest for okay. this. Um, so maybe we should do it a little bit later so we can space out your, your appearances. But uh, like how much of a premium do we either as critics or as movie watchers put on something making sense? Oh, I put very little. It's not as important to me as no, it used to be. Doesn't matter. Something making sense w- within the world of the film, even that's not super important to me. Like it if, doesn't if, matter if, me if a at filmmaker all. <laughs> does something that is like silly or weird. Part of me, my first thought is, "All right, that is that would would not be my first instinct." <laughs> but they must have a reason for doing so. Yeah, I mean, what's the point of art if it's not yeah unbelievable in some fashion? What I will say about that <laughs> lightsaber, though, given what we've just said, what I will say, that does not seem like the most practical thing. I would agree with that. Yeah, it feels like it'd be very easy for your hand to slip and you've cut your fingers off. Maybe he's got some kind of special glove. I guess so. It just doesn't see. I feel like what aside from aesthetic. Right. Obviously, which obviously for us is why. Yeah. Why it's that. I just i'm trying to think what the point is and and i feel like enough other people have observed that that i feel like okay it's it's one thing to to push certain things aside for something that's aesthetically pleasing and that is a really neat shot yeah and it's a nice reveal um but when you have a lot of people saying i don't because they would everyone's now thinking he cut his fingers off <laughs> like now it's starting or to whole hand or That's a uh, star wars oh. thing though yeah but if he cuts off his own hand due to stupidity (laughs) um boy that'd be a fun development wouldn't it a a little misdirect you think he'd be like the ominous bad guys whoops (laughs) yeah they showed just how far the dark side has fallen (laughs) just a bunch of dunces um but uh (laughs) the sith lives (laughs) the sith will rise again yeah um it's a reference to the south will rise again oh boy but it was a play on words scott (laughs) um but yeah that actually that moment and again I try, I really try not to care that much about something making sense. But in that moment, I was like, I feel like no one in this world would ever do that. <laughs> like it, it feels like they're trying to sh- show their version of the two-sided lightsaber, that oh, Darth yeah, Maul had, had. which was actually cool and maybe not totally practical, but at least made a little see, bit yeah. more sense. If somebody trained enough, you could see the practical exactly. application of it. Yeah. not words. really
1: sure what you're doing with those small
0: little things. Exactly. Gonna, like
1: bop somebody on the head with
0: it. <laughs> 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 Wouldn't it be funny if you extended the two things on the side, but not the main right, lightsaber, yeah. and you just use as a sort of a, a hammer, yeah, or something like that, or a not blow about torch. a hammer, but you know, maybe cut some lunch meat or something e- exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it, in general, um, it is interesting. I'm sure the I'm sure the film. Obviously, I'll see it. Everyone's yeah. going to see it. What are you going to do? Not see it? Not on. See it? Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm still. I just find myself trepidatious about it. I just, yeah. I don't know. I have no doubt that it'll be better than the prequels because I do by and large, like JJ J. Abrams as a filmmaker, certainly as a director, he's about two
1: for, he's about half and a half
0: for me. Okay. So let's see here. What do we got? Mission impossible three, which I love. I love. Then you got star Trek, star Trek. Not so hot on that. I do enjoy it. Okay. I think it's, I think it has a lot of flaws. Yeah. Um, but I do enjoy it. Um, Super 8, which I didn't like that much, but it's been growing on me. I've barely thought about it. I didn't feel like it was okay. It did seem, and that's the thing, his direct homages to Spielberg in that is what kind of makes me iffy about him doing a Star Wars film. Well, it's also just the way he fumbles those homages. Like, he tries to get the,
1: like, father-son reunion which doesn't work at all because it didn't sound like the dad really cared about the
0: kid until he found him again. And he's trying to get us to have like sympathy via ET, like trying to get, or sorry, a la uh, ET trying to get us to have sympathy for the alien. And it's like, it's hard to do that when we did see the alien eat a number of people and then store people for later (laughs) eating. Yeah. ET didn't do that. Yeah. ET just hung out and like ate some candy. Yeah. Totally chill alien. Steven Spielberg, by and large, whenever one of his, whenever the villain, uh, consumed people, <laughs> he had nothing but condemnation for that.
1: Yeah. It'd be like a tearful reunion with the T-Rex at the end of Jurassic Park. It does. They do give it sort of a hero shot at the end. Though. Yeah. A hero shot is one yes. thing, but it's not like, you know, the kid was then going up and petting the T-Rex. Exa- like, Thank you. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then in the next film, the, there are two T-Rexes and they rip, uh, rip, uh, Richard Schiff in half. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very disturbing scene to me, um, but yeah. Uh, what was oh yeah. So then there's so there's Super Eight, which I didn't love, but there are things about it that I like. And then I think after that is only Star Trek Into Darkness, which right? I completely love. <laughs> I know. What is what is the difference in your opinion between the first Star Trek and that one?
1: Um, the first Star Trek has a lot of what I hate, which is like kind of false team building through like really strained conflict between the team members. Okay. Whereas in the second one, like they're a team and they're just on the same page and they're just going for it and you get much better banter between the team members because they're working towards a common goal. Yeah. I hate, you know, just the first one wasting time with them, like introducing friction between the team members. Mm. then resolved by the time they get to the third act because they have to. Get
0: is it. that a thing that you would say you genuinely, uh, generally don't like is the first entry in what's obviously going to be a franchise and just feeling like, okay, we have to, introduce a lot of elements yeah i I generally tend to like the sequels the second or third one more than the first okay um all right yeah and that's and i think one of the things that always got me about jj Abrams when it was announced that he was going to be making star wars i remember part of me thought well he did have two movies to practice on because clearly he's wanted to make star wars the whole time yeah um do you think he's gonna? I mean, they're obviously gonna make another Star Trek film at some point. Do you think yeah, he's gonna no, do that too?
1: No. Um. What's his name? Roberto Orci. Orci, however you pronounce the name, sounds familiar. He co-wrote the last two Star Trek movies. Oh, okay. And is apparently somewhat insane, <laughs> and has never directed so much as a commercial in his life so that is both exciting and (laughs) uh, we'll see yeah so i mean paramount's definitely going to want to get a movie out because it's the 50th anniversary in 2016 of star trek
0: Mm. so they're going to get a movie no matter what and it kind of feels like a lot's going to suffer along the way yeah it does i mean it 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 almost feels to me like brian singer leaving the x-men franchise for for superman yeah almost like he feels like he traded up to what he wanted to do the whole time, right? And then left it in the no. I hadn't hands thought of that comparison, of but that's dead on. Brett
1: Ratner. Well, he technically left it in the hands of Matthew Vaughn, who quit like six weeks before the movie was going to shoot. Oh, I don't think I knew that. That's why I don't totally blame Brett Ratner for because he had six weeks to prepare
0: yeah. a movie. Um. So yeah, it was a rough scene all around. There are a couple things in that film that I feel like the the juggernaut bitch. Thing, yeah, that seems like Brett Ratner's. Well, inclusion. that's the kind of
1: thing you can add at the last minute. But like Absolutely. Kelsey Grammer was already cast, and that's why Kelsey Grammer is so awesome in the
0: movie because Damn somebody right. other than Brett Ratner cast him. <laughs> <laughs> he is good in that movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, okay. So that's. So I'd say uh, cautiously optimistic about Star Wars. Yeah, and I'm actually cautiously optimistic about Jurassic World, knowing full well that one could definitely completely tank yeah uh not financially it'll do fine financially probably artistically it could be a a big train wreck um star wars i that's the thing it could still be it could be not very good and i think it would at the very least still be capably handled oh yeah at the very least so and you know what i know it sounds weird for me but um and i have no doubt that they play supporting if not completely minor roles but the opportunity to see Mark Hamill and oh, Harrison yeah. Ford and Carrie Fisher, there is something in me that's just like, I feel like we're genuinely back now. Yeah. Whereas the um, prequels never felt like they were part of the same universe to me.
1: A little bit towards the end of the third one, actually, when they started doing, they like threw in some practical sets out of nowhere. To, yeah. Like, kind of visually tied in, which I think worked. Um, yeah. Although allegedly Harrison Ford's a very big part of this new movie.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay. That's neat. Yeah. Um, I saw images of Mark Hamill and he's got, he's, you know, he's got the Jedi beard yeah, and all that. He looks pretty cool. He looks pretty cool. And I, it's it's weird, but I'm just, I'm very excited to see, yeah, I'm excited to see that. And I wish that I could be objective and just say, oh, yeah. as a film critic, <laughs> I don't know, I think this and this. I can but, be more objective when the actual movie comes out, when it's, exactly. know, it's a minute and a half trailer. It's like, yeah. why not be a little excited? Yeah, yeah. And you and I were talking uh, off mic about how some t- in in some cases it's oh I I'm seeing the Millennium Falcon but I'm still aware that I'm seeing a digital Millennium Falcon right. Whereas the th- the the part that got me was the uh, the sound of the X-wings, well, which, the, which we did not hear in the prequels. Yeah, that's true. And so we haven't heard it since officially 1983, <laughs> um, more or less uh, 1987 though. Really? Oh yeah, I guess that's um, true. Yeah,
1: no, the soundscape of Star Wars is so unique yeah. and so well done that small things like that really bring you back
0: and absolutely yeah it's uh i'm 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 obviously i'm excited to see it next year is going to be very interesting as far as blockbusters yeah i'm that way i am excited for the next avengers partially because i do think the casting of james spader as a robot <laughs> is inspired james spader and anything is usually inspired that is true he is maybe my favorite part of Lincoln, which is a film. He's I'd, really good in it. Yeah, which is a film I don't particularly like, and I don't know if you ever saw Wolf with Jack Nicholson. I did not. James Spader as a werewolf. I believe at the time I, when I saw the film, I said he is both scary <laughs> and uh, and uh, sleazy. So that's James Spader in about that era. So. <laughs> that's about right. Yeah, um, it's weird to think that he was ever like. Like, did you ever see Stargate? <laughs> no. It's not good, okay? Um, but he's cast as a as a lovable uh, eccentric scientist. And it's like <laughs> you were wrong on a lot of points. <laughs> you make that you make that scientist scientist a womanizing madman. Now we're talking. There you go. Um, okay, so before we move into the topic, uh, this episode is also brought to you by the Double Feature Podcast. This week, discussing two undisputed ca- uh, classics: The Third Man and North by Northwest. In this episode, they talk about Cold War Noir which is hard to say, Orson Welles' wonderful Ferris Will speech, and the general impact of Hitchcock, and the effect that it can have on the audience to hear over and over again that a filmmaker is a master. To hear this and other episodes, just click on the ad at battleshippretension.com. All right. So, I'm not going to say David's line, so let's begin. All right. Let's. So... Uh, I'm not really sure where I came where I, I came up with this, except I, I feel like it's a thing I want to I may want to do um, from time to time. Is have on people like front of the show Jason, Eakin, um, you know yourself, maybe a, a Josh Fadem if he has done something like this. But basically, everybody I know has their top ten movies of all time, and it winds up being it's not telling or anything like that, but it's it's interesting. Um, I almost feel like it's it's sort of like looking at somebody's mail and you see like, Oh, these are the magazines they subscribe to. They like this enough to actually sign up for it. (laughs) And a person's top 10 tends to be something of at the very least when it comes to their, you know, the type of movies they like and the type of film goer they are, it tends to be something of a calling card.
1: Yeah. I was actually looking over my own and realizing how much these films have in common
0: emotionally speaking and how much many of them are basically the same film. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, not so much anymore, but for a long time, my top 10 was, it was filled with noir right. and cynicism, <laughs> and just, like, the most upbeat film w- was, I think, Dr. Strangelove or Jaws, and it's just like, oh, well, that's okay, <laughs> and then as time has gone on, I think it my top 10 has softened a little bit, but... Okay. Not much. The edge is coming off in your old age. Absolutely. <laughs> now my favorite film is Nashville, which is not cynical at all. <laughs> um, so, okay. So we're going to be talking about Scott's 10 favorite movies of all time. Now, all time. I will ask you this. Did you make this list recently or has this been the definitive list for a while? This has been the definitive list since at least January of this year. Okay. Yeah. Do you revisit your top 10 periodically or is it just not a thing you think about very much
1: um i just had cause to i was putting it or some form or something i was signing up for okay and so i just threw in the top 10 i had already and i was like some of this doesn't feel right so i moved it a little bit of around and it's mostly the same 10 films i think one dropped out but i can't remember what what it
0: was at this point yeah i redo my top 100 every two or three years at this point i tried to do a top 100 it's too much for me I mean, in the end, like I'll be the first to admit it's hardly definitive. It's yeah. pretty arbitrary. It, it tends to be, I just, I've, I've started to just view it as this is me as a film lover right now. Right. And there's usually about 60 to 70 films that never, the, the, they might just shift around on the yeah. top hundred, but they don't go anywhere. But then there's a solid 30 films that, that come in and then there are some that drop out and then three years after that, they'll, they come back. Yeah. Um, so it's, it winds up being, and my top 10, uh, has shifted a lot over the years. Yeah. Um, one thing that's particularly fun to see is when I first started making my top hundreds, it was, it was neat to see Nashville start at 30. Oh yeah. Jump to, I think into the teens, then 10 for one just, and I feel like that speaks to, again, this speaks to who I am or who I've become as a film lover. Yeah. Um, Would you say that whatever your number one is and I don't know what it is, but whatever it might be is it Has that been your number one for years?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean actually all of these I There's nothing I've seen in the last five years at least that's on here probably even longer than that And I saw my number one film much before that and that stayed my number one since about 2008 or so. Okay. Yeah
0: All right. Well, we've been going for about 30 minutes, which is very exciting. All right um I said I wanted this episode to be short. It might not be. We'll see. So, all right. Starting with number 10. Let me ask you this. Off the top of your head, do you have a number 11? Like maybe uh, uh, the film that dropped out? Yeah, no, I, I have a longer
1: list somewhere. But okay. I can't remember what number 11 is. Okay. I think it might be The Royal Tenenbaums, but I'm not
0: totally sure. Interesting. Okay. Well, then we'll just jump right into, the number, t- into number 10. Scott, your 10th favorite movie of all time. It is Michael Cortese's Casablanca. Casablanca. A film that I didn't actually
1: love the first time I saw it. I saw it pretty soon after I saw The Big Sleep, which, as you know, I'm a big fan of The Big Sleep. Yeah. I was like, I could use some more of this. And it is not at all like The Big Sleep. Uh, I saw it after
0: watching Maltese Falcon for the same reason. had the same reaction. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Even though The Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon are actually pretty different movies. They are. Um, But I I went in looking for noir. And despite... Despite Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre and <laughs> Humphrey Bogart all being in both films, uh, it is a notably different film.
1: Yeah, I'd, I've known people who insist it's noir, mostly because it's Bogart in a trench coat. And I'm like, come on, guys. It is not. Um, yeah, no, I but it, I then I saw it again in college as part of a class where we watched it like five times over the course of a, probably a month or so. Wow. Yeah. And that was like. One of the greatest things I ever did in college was being forced to watch Casablanca and figure out what makes it such a good movie. That's great. Yeah. It was totally rewarding and maybe it was just uh, being beaten into submission by the end of it. But I came out completely adoring the movie for, I mean, I don't have like a special take on it. I love it for the reasons everybody does. Uh, the, I can never pronounce it, but the French national anthem scene. Uh, Yeah.
0: I don't remember. I don't, not it is a wonderful wonderful scene it, though.
1: Literally, it's one of the few scenes in any movies that makes me cry. Um It's very rare for me to cry in any movie, and yeah. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times, and still every single time, it yeah. just completely kills me. And it's and you know
0: what? It's so interesting. There are you know, when you're when you're striving to be a, a film critic and you see a lot of films, you you can be kind of jaded, especially when it comes to just sentimentality yeah. and that sort of thing. That scene is there's no question about it. There's a melodrama to it. There's a sentimentality to it. There's a patriotism to it. All things that can't, when, that when used incorrectly in a film, drive me crazy. Yeah. But when but when you, but when used when used well, what most stirring things I've ever seen. Well, and context is everything.
1: I mean, this movie was made literally in the middle of the war, while the French people were really under occupation. Yeah. And the Americans were really just starting to dip their toes into it. And it was very much like it came out exactly at the right time. Yeah. And to put yourself in that context, I think it's impossible to not be deeply moved
0: by the movie. And it's so interesting because it's an American film. Now, admittedly, yeah. it's not directed by an American director, but it's so interesting that while it is an American film, the song they're singing is the French national anthem. Yeah. And it's still stirring. Like, it's... I think it's that all slight remove, though, that yeah. makes
1: it so stirring. Like, I feel like... I mean, partially because they're not in America, but, like, the yeah. American national anthem wouldn't fit in with the movie at all. Right. But it also, like... It's a good national anthem. Yeah. Um, but because we're allied with the French, like, it feels like yeah. it brings them closer to us. It brings us all together. Yeah. And kind of brings the war effort, you know? Yeah all is one um and then in the more emotional side, i not the more emotional but the romance side of the story it gets to the main theme that i noticed looking over my 10 films which is the ending is both happy and sad mm-hmm. and acknowledges that you know there's sadness in life but that doesn't mean uh diminish the happiness yeah and that sort of not quite melancholy but you know bittersweet bittersweet yes yeah is a major theme it turns out in my list in my life <laughs> Now let me ask you this, and
0: perhaps you're not comfortable saying it. Well, so we'll that's find out. Um, uh, as you go through this sort of thing, and you notice, oh, this seems to be a running theme. Do you find yourself kind of going into self-analysis mode and think, well, what is it about me and my life, and what's what's gone on, um, you know, relationships I've had or whatever? Uh, what is it about these films that really appeal really resonate with me personally do you find yourself doing that and do you have any theories feel free to not answer oh no it's a side of myself that i was
1: very aware of and i just wasn't aware that it came out specifically in these 10 films okay i didn't think about that in terms of arranging them into a top 10 i just was looking over them this week and realizing how close they reflected something i was very aware of and i'll definitely with one of them in particular be getting quite
0: personal about it okay yeah well, let's get to it <laughs> uh number nine Take us away. That is Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. Wild Strawberries. Yes,
1: it is. His 1957 film made the same year as The Seventh Seal. So he made two huge classics of... It's no War of the Worlds in Munich, though. (laughs) Well, sure. You know, (laughs) what is? Um, But this is the one that I prefer of the two. The Seventh Seal is a very good movie, and I love it more... Each time I see it, but wild strawberries speaks to me much more. Um, I said, I was going to get personal with a movie coming up. This isn't the movie I was thinking of, but it does have a personal story behind it, which is that, uh, I saw this between sophomore and junior year of college for the first time. Um, and at the time I was like, is this whole film thing really worth pursuing? Like, I don't really know if it's, uh, the best thing I can be doing. And, you know, Maybe it's not the best thing I could be doing, but um, at the same time, when I saw that movie, it was so beautiful and so touching that I just couldn't I never really questioned it again. Um, It became very obvious that film is incredibly important and very personal and spiritual Mm -hmm. and uh, everything you could look for in life and art. And so it had a very indelible mark on me
0: yeah it's kind of it's it's weird how there are films that justify film as a thing yeah um as just as much a tangible wonderful thing as anything else in the world yeah as much like almost as much as a human relationship oh yeah (laughs) i mean may see more about
1: me than anything else but i've definitely had as close relationships with films i've had with some people so uh (laughs) boy i hear you um and those i was
0: very rarely
1: let me down well they do frequently <laughs> oh, come on now Sorry, yeah. <laughs> we still have jurassic world to get through um but yeah i will say i've seen it many times and i got the chance to see it on the big screen not too long ago actually after i'd seen it probably half a dozen times before that and it was like seeing it for the first time it was mm-hmm. one of those like it's such a small intimate drama it's just about an old man going on a road trip to receive uh some sort of honorary degree from a university mm-hmm. um so in many ways, it it always just felt like you know TV is fine for this, it's perfectly suiting. But then you see it on the big screen, you realize that Bergman was composing the mo- this movie for yeah. the big screen. There was no television in 1957. I mean, there was, but like it wasn't a viable distribution means for movies.
0: Yeah, it was hardly a given that Wild Strawberries was going to be on in everybody's uh, living room. Oh yeah, I mean, even wouldn't necessarily be
1: outside of Sweden necessarily. Yeah. Um, but so you you really see sometimes seeing older movies and. The big screen because i mean nowadays it feels like sometimes even widescreen is like cropped full frame it seems like they're composing as much for tv yeah. as for the theater hmm. um but I, I just totally love seeing it in the theater to get that overwhelming experience
0: yeah my my wife has a story that she likes to tell um in which she had seen Back when Citizen Kane was my favorite film of all time, as opposed to merely my second favorite film of all time. Um, with nothing but dirt at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Who gives a shit? Uh, The uh, when we were dating, Jen and I watched it and she just did not respond to it at all. And I think she even tried to watch it on her own and didn't respond to it. It was not until we actually she we God bless her for making a go of it. (laughs) Time number three. Yeah. We saw it at the Arclight. Yeah. And it also helps that it was an audience full of people that love the film. Yeah. um, But also weren't like assholes about it. Like, yeah, I mean they're there for the movie. Uh, yeah. But like not there wasn't any of that anticipatory laughter oh, or yeah. anything like that, which I hate. But that's not honoring the movie. That's honoring your yourself and your right. re- rec- recollection of the movie. That's true, but there are still plenty of people that do that. Oh, I know. I'm just saying um, like it's nice to sit with a crowd that really is there in, for the movie. Absolutely. And it was a full show, and um and Jen said that was the first time she felt this movie is not only good but it is wonderful. Like the big, literally seeing it on the big screen is yeah. what changed her entire opinion of the film. Yeah. Um, and then a story that I, that I have told before is uh, as listeners know, because I've said it many times, uh, the film I've seen more than any other is jaws. Number three on my list, by the way. <laughs> um, and then I saw it at the ArcLight a few years ago and when and again, by that time, I'd probably seen it does several dozen yeah. times. And seeing it that, seeing it there, obviously, of course, I know the script, I know, right. I probably know the entire script by heart <laughs> at this point. I know all the story beats, but in that moment, I felt like I was genuinely watching it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I can't speak highly enough about seeing a movie in the theater if you can. Yeah, especially, I'll say this, especially older films where. They were completely meant for the theater. Now, of course, a lot of filmmakers these days, they do mean it for the theater, but then there are some knowing full well, having now, having interned at a couple of production companies, yeah. there are, are guys, there are producers who will make a film that is ostensibly, it will be released in theaters, it'll have a limited run, but they know it'll play way better on video. Yeah. And then, like I said, you can even just see in the compositions, there's so yeah. much more cutting, so much more close shots
1: of people. Yeah. Whereas in the older films, you get the big wide vistas and yeah. You just can't match that on TV.
0: Yeah, and when I saw when I saw Alien on the big screen, yeah, oddly enough, a bigger screen makes it more uh, claustrophobic. Oh, undoubtedly, yeah, because you're just surrounded by the ship and oh, sounds and um, those horrible sounds. This, <laughs> uh, you sound like the Grinch. All the noise, noise. Um, but yeah, and so, uh, so what is it specifically about? I mean, you you talked about just the composition of the film. What is yeah. it specifically about? wild strawberries that which is how i'm going to say it at the time now um partially because uh here's a fun story jen yesterday we were playing a game that involved the word dysentery um, all right um but it, she was Sounds reading like a fun game it, it was it was the, it was cards against humanity okay. um and uh she pronounced it dysentery <laughs> and so is that
1: i realize she doesn't have cause to usually say that word but is, yeah, had you heard her pronounce it that way
0: before? Is that just how she thought it was pronounced? She, she put it down to, and I completely believe her. Uh, she'd been watching a lot of Downton Abbey. Ah, yes. And, uh, and it's an older, sh- like that it takes, it's a period show. And yeah. I could see somebody talking about like, Oh, he died of dysentery in the war or something <laughs> like that. And so, uh, so I've, Found myself saying, like, it's like, oh, I've eaten too many strawberries and now I have dysentery. <laughs> it's well, ridiculous. it's a Swedish film too. It works kind of with the accent. There you go. Um, um, but yeah, so what is it that makes you
1: really love this film so much? I think it is, as I said with Casablanca, kind of the ending, which um, Bergman could be fairly miserableist, as you might know from his reputation yep. in whatever films you've seen of his. Um, but in the earlier films, in kind of the pre 60s stuff, he could really get that exact tone of like mm-hmm. recognizing how many things have gone. Cause it's about this old man who has a lot of regrets in his life and he kind of goes through them in the, over the course of this trip. And by the end, it's not like everything's better and it, you kind of recognize, especially with the relationship with the son that he's never going to fix whatever is going on between them, which we yeah. don't totally realize, but we can kind of suss out. Um, but you can see that at least he's recognized that and can at least change his attitude going forward yeah. and he has this wonderful exchange right at the end with uh his housekeeper who's probably worked with him for decades mm-hmm. um and he suggests that they start calling each other by their first names and she says no that wouldn't suit me you know we are formal with each other and that's just the way it's going to be Yeah. and it's a small like almost comic exchange but it points to the larger point of the movie which is that you know you can make small changes in how you treat people but ultimately what's come before is going to inform what's going ahead
0: yeah. Which is one of my deepest fears, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't see this movie after all. <laughs> yeah. That movie and arachnophobia, they really play. Uh, they really p- prey on my fears. Um, okay, so that's number nine. Number eight, Scott, take us away. It is uh, Jean Vigo's La
1: I think that is how you pronounce it. I'm getting better with my French by the day, but hopefully that'll do. Um, Jean Vigo died actually very shortly after making this movie, um, just after its premiere. So this is the only feature film he made. He made a couple of other shorter movies. But for the most part, this is what we've got to go on with him. And mm-hmm. as much as people you know, mourn the loss of never seeing a, like, a Charles Lott movie or something, this is the guy for me that I so wish he would have made more movies. Because hmm. he made this one movie that is so – it's very loose in many ways. The character interactions are kind of like – lovingly sketched and not, it's not a very tightly written movie. You get the sense that it could have been largely improvised, but it probably wasn't just given the time periods made in like 1934. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a looseness to it, but at the same time, like it just feels like a total realization of what this guy was capable of. Yeah. Um, So much so that there's like effect shots later in the movie that Charlie Chaplin like came to set because he saw the shorter films. They did the same sort of stuff on and mm-hmm. tried to figure out how he did this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, So even Chaplin at the time recognized that this guy who's 28, 29, had this unbelievable talent about him. Uh, the movie's about a couple of newlyweds. Uh, the man works or is the captain of a, this barge. And the woman, you get the sense she comes from kind of a small provincial town, that hasn't really seen much of the world. And maybe she's just marrying the guy because like he has a sense of adventure about him. Mm-hmm. But the movie's really about kind of those first, especially the initial weeks, but in many ways, the first year of marriage where you at? both are completely infatuated with the person and want to be around them every second of the day and also despise every habit that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of comedy to be reading from it, especially there's a supporting character uh, played by Michelle Simon, who's a, one of the best actors who ever lived. He hmm. um, just has this, he almost is kind of like Charles Lawton actually he has this great face that kind of <laughs> says it all about the character and he's a very comic character, but it takes the relationship very seriously and kind of the, frictions that can exist between newlyweds yeah. and they literally in the opening scene, walk from the church onto the barge of the boat. Hmm. And so it has kind of this very immediate metaphor of like going into a new life yeah. after getting married. Um, it is just a wonderful, beautiful film. I hadn't seen it in a while, watched a little bit of her earlier today and just completely
0: was enraptured by it again. Do you feel like it fits into the larger theme of, of your top 10? I don't know how it ends. Um, but, uh, Do you feel like, uh, because you're talking about these two, like we're talking about bittersweet uh, in this top 10 and it certainly sounds like that. I mean, having, you know, I, I remember my first year of marriage and it is the, the thrill of, oh my gosh, here we are. We're together. I love this person more than anything. She loves me. I feel so accepted. But of course with every, every passing day, and of course, and on top of everything, my wife and I did not live together before we got married. Right. So here we are. Yeah. Uh, look, here's how I clip my toenails. It's with my teeth. Um, that's not true, everybody. But um, but yeah, but with every passing day, you're discovering new things about the person. Now, in some both good cases, and bad. both good and bad. And that's but that's thing is. The good stays good, but the bad actually can bring the good down a little bit, and yeah. you immediately start to think all right i'm I'm in this for the long haul, theoretically, yeah, is this a thing I can live with or a thing I should mention yeah, and it's it's exciting, but boy it's it's surprisingly scary.
1: Yeah. And there's this great scene in the movie where she's trying to listen to the news from Paris and what's going on there because she's always wanted, always wanted to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, Paris, we, hopefully we don't have to stop there for long. <laughs> and you get the sense that, like, it's just a tossed off comment for him. But, you know, yeah. the camera focuses on her and she's like, well, this is kind of like what I wanted out of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the small ways in which people can hurt each other is at the center of the movie. But it is in many ways bittersweet, and it's not an unhappy movie about the first year of
0: marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you ultimately get the sense that they're, they're going to make it. Yeah, it's and that it's it's odd that any film that is realistic about relationships is viewed as negative, <laughs> <laughs> just because it's not a storybook right, right kind of thing. Um, yeah, that sounds wonderful. And and what is it called again? Uh, La Laudalant. Now, how do you spell that? Uh, that
1: is L-apostrophe-A-T-A-L-A-N-T-E.
0: All right. Uh, it's very exciting. I know I, I haven't seen it. I've heard such wonderful things about it. And I don't think I ever even knew what it was about. Uh, but every that sounds right up my alley. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, it was actually one of the rare movies that I was shown in film school as one of the greatest movies ever made. That completely lived up to its reputation the first time I saw it. What's a film that didn't? Casablanca would be... Well, I didn't see that in film school, actually. Um, but that's the one I always go to is Casablanca, which okay. was, you know, obviously one of the
0: greatest movies ever made. Right. But, you know, I didn't really see it that way the first yeah. time I saw it. Yeah, at the time, you were wrong. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so that was uh, number eight? Yes. Okay, seven. Here we go.
1: Curveball time. It is John Patrick Shanley's Joe versus the Volcano.
0: <laughs> you know what? It, admittedly, it is a curveball for the tone right now. Right. But... That's a great movie. I love it so
1: much. Yeah. Um, and it's actually totally in keeping thematically with what I've been talking no about. No question about it. <laughs> um, but it's also, I mean, it's first of all, very, very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene in the luggage store where the guy is, um, his whole life is dedicated to luggage. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually Joe played by Tom Hanks buys all the biggest steamer trunks. he has. Yeah. And made you live to be a thousand years old <laughs> 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 and I lose it every time. Yeah. Um, but it is uh, Tom Hanks plays this guy, Joe, who's just working in a shitty office. Um, another another day older and deeper in debt. Exactly. Um, gets uh, Told he has a degenerative disease called the brain cloud. Uh, <laughs> quits his job and immediately gets hired to go to an island and jump into a volcano, which is a weird premise for a movie. And they go full on in the fantasy of it. Yeah. While still keeping, I think, a very potent emotional core in terms of just, like, taking chances with your life, which is an easy thing for films to do because it's kind of locked off and you don't have to worry too much about the consequences. But at the same time, like, you get the scene where you shipwrecked. And that, to me, is, like, one of the most powerful spiritual scenes in any movie i have ever seen. Interesting. Um, because, you know, they don't shy away from, like, the physical defects. Like, there's, like, weird things coming on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they just throw up this moon. That's like way bigger than any moon could possibly be. (laughs) Um, and the commitment that Tom Hanks has in that moment of just like feeling like he's lost everything and is giving himself over to, uh, what he says, uh, dear God, whose name I do not know, Mm -hmm. um, is very touching to me. Um, and yes, it immediately goes from that to a tribe people who are obsessed with orange soda (laughs) and that the movie can contain those two things. Um, to me is fascinating and, one I just love every
0: time I see it. You know, it's interesting when I think of of actors, of certain choices made by actors at a certain point in their career, um, and like somebody taking a risk um, as far as how they might be perceived by the public or whatever. Um, I remember thinking that Tom Hanks and Joe versus the volcano, like everything about this movie is strange yeah. and doesn't really fit with the mainstream. I don't remember how it did. I seem to recall it being something of a flop. It did very poorly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and this thing Tom Hanks had to know there's a pretty big chance that this is not going to go well uh financially
1: well i mean at the same time it was produced by steven spielberg yeah um he was coming off i think the burbs was the year before it was 89 right yeah, yeah. um and tom hanks talks about that movie as the first one he did when which the camera like was a character and had a perspective hmm. and you can see in joe versus the volcano him being attracted to the same sort of thing mm-hmm. um But at the same time, like, I don't know how you get to a script in which there's a tribe of people obsessed with orange soda and not be like, this could be a little weird for people.
0: Yeah. Well, and yeah, undoubtedly he thought that. But I think he was still able to see there's really something going on here. And I haven't seen the film for years. But I mean, I first saw it when I was young. Yeah. I believe I saw. Did I see it? No, I saw the I saw the burbs in a drive in. Oh, okay. But I think I saw I think I saw the film in the theater or maybe on video. I don't know. Either way, I saw it. Roughly when it came out, yeah, and I was young, I liked it then, which is weird. Um, and my parents loved it, yeah, and uh, and then I saw it again several years later, and I really thought that like this is a special movie, yeah, and it did not deserve because by that time I was aware of its reputation. Yes, yeah. a, a lot of people did not care for it at all.
1: It's a joke on uh, one of Hank's appearance on Saturday Night Live, actually, <laughs> when he gets into the Five Timers Club, they're like, oh, yeah. and we'll forget about Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> Yeah, and, and he like, kind of you dis- shouldn't. I know, and he kind of
0: disowns it now. I think, um, which is too bad because, like, what do you got to lose, guy? Yeah. If anything, like, if anything, a you believed in this once. Yeah. Because this was I th- was this after big, right? I think so. Yeah. So he could have done almost anything. Yeah. But he saw some merit in this. Yeah. So like, acknowledge that this was a thing that you once thought was good, and recognize that you have fame now. Yeah. You by sheer force of will and a Twitter account, you could make this movie big again, you know, not, sorry, not the big, right. Well, he's going to make a sequel called big again. <laughs> he could do that if he so would desire.
1: He sure could. Um, um But there but seems yeah. to be a small cult around it. So it seems like people do yeah. dig it. I saw it um at a midnight show at the new Beverly a couple of years ago uh, with a crowd that totally loved it. People yeah. are out there. They're digging it. Yeah. Um, and that and that that's okay. Yeah, as,
0: as it's a film that deserves to be uh, rediscovered for sure. So, all right, that's very exciting. So that was number seven, right? That was number six. Total opposite of that,
1: uh, along Renee's last year at Marion Bad. Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: admittedly, another film that uh, the uh, the actors might have looked at the script and said, yeah. "Oh, well." Okay. Uh, Yeah, that is a film that I have seen. And that uh, when I first saw it, I just could not get my mind around it. And that frustrated me. But as tends to happen with movies like this, my mind returned to it over and over and over. And I kind of kind of love it now
1: i'm glad to hear it um it was a movie that i'd heard a lot about before I, it was very hard to see for a while until criterion released it on blu-ray which now is out of print so it's hard to see again yeah. um, but at the time i saw it like luckily my video store had like a bootleg copy from england or something mm-hmm. um but it was one of those movies that like uh jean-luc godard talks about this in uh, masculine feminine where some people go to the movies and they're like it's not the movie we had in mind the one we held in our hearts Last Year of Bad was exactly the movie I thought it was, hmm. and I loved it for that. It's, it's usually with movies that are kind of mysterious and uh, a little artsy, for lack of a better word. There ends up being kind of like a central reality to it that kind of degrades it in a way. Yeah. But Last Year of Bad is like completely in its own dream world. Yes, And it just is very committed to that and very pleased to stay in that world. It doesn't yeah. make excuses for it. It doesn't like the guy doesn't wake up at the end and be like, oh that was a weird ass dream I had. Um, you know, it's just content to be very avant garde, very strange. No. Um, but the more times I see it, I've seen it probably five times at th- this point. The last time I saw it was actually at the Arc Light mm-hmm. with an audience that was totally into it, which was great. The first time I'd seen it on film. Um and that just completely bowled me over and I I loved it even more. I couldn't believe that I loved it as little as I did before. Even though it was even yeah. like top ten by then, you felt like by merely loving it. Yeah, I wasn't. You doing were doing injustice. It, yeah, an yeah, injustice.
0: Which at this point is like, well, now I need to keep watching it because clearly I don't love yeah. it enough. <laughs> why am I not watching it all the time? Yeah. Uh, um, why can't I quit my job and just devote myself to it? If only.
1: Um, for yeah. those who don't know, it's about a man who approaches a woman at this kind of like. I don't know if these things actually exist, but this very mid century and before idea of like going to a country estate and Mm -hmm. spending your holiday there. Yeah. And people, you know, gather and play games and watch plays and, you know. And it then somebody gets murdered and we right. got to figure out who did it. <laughs> um, somebody could get murdered in this movie. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe everyone's dead. It's Who's to totally, say? Pa- it, people do read it sometimes as a ghost story, which is totally possible. It does. It certainly feels like that at yeah. times. Um, but it's about this man who tries to convince this woman that they met last year, not actually at Marion bad, which kind of gives the title. <laughs> yeah. It's like they couldn't even make the title normal. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's about him kind of pursuing her kind of creepily. And the way what you eventually discover about their relationship, not necessarily through it stating it outright, but through insinuation is indeed quite horrifying, which makes the ending all the more damning. It's the closest on this film and this list to being an outright. Well, I guess not the closest, but um, it's definitely one of the more downbeat endings on this list mm-hmm. um, in terms of just a character making a decision that you cannot comprehend. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, feels very weak and vulnerable and honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I. You know, I. I wish I could say I remembered more about the film. It's. It's hard to explain. I don't. I don't remember specific scenes. I remember obviously tone and visual yeah. and how I felt. Yeah. Um well it's, there's no there's so little connection between each
1: scene yeah. that it's hard to recall specifics so much yeah. so that when I'm in it it's only a 90 minute movie but it feels like twice as long Yeah, and I can never remember what scenes coming no. next
0: if ever a movie could be described as intangible yes. I feel like this is a, is that film absolutely um yeah it, it is a wonderful film if you listeners if you get the chance to see it rec- take it keep everything that we just said in mind <laughs> go and watch it and it is it is it's, a, it's, it's an experience, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and, of course, these days when people say something is an experience, they talk about, like, gravity or something like yeah. that. <laughs> Tell you what. Do, get a double feature going <laughs> of last year at Merriam-Bodden Gravity, and I think you got it. I don't think it's
1: – I mean, I talk about this all the time, but I don't think things are too dissimilar. Like, ultimately, you're just giving yourself over to sound and image. Um, one may be less accessible, but right. at the same time, if you're you know committed to the the idea of the power of those things, then – They're not too dissimilar.
0: Let me ask you a question. Would you say the last year at Baud, is more intellectual or emotional? I used to find it... No, that's not
1: true, actually. I've always found it very emotional. And the very least, the first time I saw it, I didn't understand it at all. Even the stuff I was talking about in terms of their past relationship and what might have happened last year. Um, I didn't understand it at all, but I still found it so haunting. And like, I don't know if I was literally shaking, but I felt like I could have been. Um, Yeah, it's always gotten to me very deeply and
0: i feel like that's the i feel like that's the, the uh what we, like what we were talking about earlier about something making sense the thing that frustrated me so much was that it didn't quote unquote make sense i was i wanted to figure it out i yeah. was approaching it because there is a mystery quality to yes, it yes absolutely but it's not the type of mystery no. <laughs> we were talking earlier about a whodunit it's not that <laughs> um but uh but yeah it is it ju- it's merely engaging with you on an emotional level and and another level that i can't quite put my finger on not necessarily intellectual but almost this feeling of like unfortunately the word sen, uh, sensual has come to mean something right. romantic and, and intimate and all that but i just mean like it engages your senses yes. along with your emotions yeah i mean the french especially in this period are
1: very good about like finding a way to make the intellectual emotional yeah um and i think just the way they use sound and image to me, in that, at least in that first viewing, was just so inherently gripping and yeah. terrifying. And
0: I, yeah, I mean, I've always found it deeply haunting and emotional experience. Yeah, Haunting is a very good word yes. for it. Because, again, I've seen it once. And the things that I remember, it is it is like I'm remembering an encounter with a ghost. Yeah. You know, um, OK. Very well, could. Be. So that was number six. Top five. We're right we now. I know. Number five scott wow me it is ernst Lubitsch's trouble in paradise which i have never seen i think you would really like it well i've liked what i've seen of his so far i saw design for living that's him right and i just last night watched to be or not to be yeah and i think i might have seen another film of his but i can't i can't he was a shop around the corner haven't seen that Uh, um i don't know okay yeah so trouble in paradise yeah what's Um, the deal What's the deal? It is about uh,
1: two thieves who meet each other. Uh, The man, Gaston, played by Herbert Marshall, um, has just come from robbing a guy in a hotel. Uh, She has come not necessarily from robbery, but definitely from impersonating like kind of a dignitary and a a society woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're both playing very different parts. And then immediately they start stealing things off each other's person culminating with him returning her garter out of nowhere hmm. that he has apparently taken while she wasn't looking. That's nice. Um, yeah. So it's, it is honestly maybe the sexiest movie I've ever seen just in terms of the banter and their relationship and their attraction to each other because they're such good thieves. Yeah. Um. And I've seen it, you know, at least half a dozen times. I still cannot stop laughing at it, but at the same time uh, they eventually go after this woman who owns uh, an array of cosmetics lines and, And uh, Gaston becomes attracted to her in the course of trying to con her out of, you know, most of her fortune. Mm -hmm. Um, So it has this love triangle going on that is is played for comedy in some respects, but is also taken seriously just enough so that by the time she finds out, because I mean it's inevitable, she's going to find out Mm -hmm. Um, she finds out what he is and what he's after. She's still attracted to him and she acknowledges that they would be great together and made in ways they're a better match emotionally and personality wise than him and the other thief. Mm -hmm. But because she's a society one, because he's a thief, because they have such different life experiences, they ultimately realize that they cannot be together. No. Um, So he goes off with uh, Miriam Hopkins, who plays the other thief, who Miriam Hopkins is one of my favorite actresses of all time. So I'm like, of course you want to go for Miriam Hopkins. but (laughs) I recognize that in some ways it's a sacrifice for him, but it's not when the movie totally dwells on it. They soon just fall back in their old patterns of stealing things off each other. Mm -hmm. And, having that same spark that they had initially so it's a very sexy very romantic movie that at the same time takes romantic attraction very seriously yeah. without abandoning comedy usually comedies that become serious you know are kind of a drag but this is still it's still as sharp as at the beginning as, at the, as it
0: was at the beginning and I It's just ha- so delightful throughout i have no doubt i mean i watched to be or not to be which is which has seen it has scenes in it that are deadly serious yes and have major ramifications. Yeah, and then in the next scene, I'm laughing my ass yeah. off. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but and and at no point, and it's and it does seem to genuinely exist in the same universe. Uh, it winds up having a similar tone. I don't know how he. I don't know how he does it. It's the Lubitsch touch. It's the ever elusive <laughs> Lubitsch yeah. touch,
1: which. Uh, people have tried to describe and is almost impossible, but it's just an ethereal quality in his movies that ranges from the way people deliver lines. Cause perform- performances in his movies are unlike anything actors give in other movies. Yeah. Um, even in the, you know, the studio system where people had very defined star personas, people in an Ernst Lubitsch movie do not act like they do in other movies. No. Um, so it's everything from the line readings to that juxtaposition of comedy and drama and no. tearful farewells. And um, yes, it's an 83 minute movie, but it says, everything I could want to say about uh, love and romance. 83 minutes. I love it. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> um, uh, so, okay. So the idea of the, the uh, male th- Herbert, what was his name? Herbert Marshall, Herbert Marshall. And he's, he's kind of falling for this high society woman and yes. realizing we can't be together. Not because we don't want to be not because personality wise it wouldn't work out, but because we're from different worlds. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like, that
1: movie could not exist today. Today it'd be like, of course they would abandon their worlds for each other. Yeah. You know, love conquers all. Yeah. I saw Titanic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. But in, you know, in that time, like class was a real concern for people. Yeah. Not just in terms of how they were perceived, but just in terms of how they could, could coexist with somebody. Yeah. It's one thing for them to woo each other, you know, but to live together, to make a life together, like the class distinctions were a very real thing that people had to contend with. And I feel yeah. like that's in movies like Titanic, it's very tossed off. As just like a frivolous concern for frivolous people. Yeah. But it ultimately was your upbringing, you know, it came to define so much of who you were.
0: And so, and I, I, I'm worried that I'm actually going to ruin this film for myself, but I, <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. It's impossible um, to, the yeah. small details alone are. uh So he goes back to this other thief and they fall back into old patterns. But in doing so, like the initial spark is there, I guess, absolutely. So. Let me ask let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible for somebody to look at that story and say that the film is an exploration of class, but also it ultimately says, stay in your class, you'll still be fine? Um, that's not, if anything, I would say it's guilty of staying, saying
1: like, uh, the whole like love the one you're with mentality. Okay. Um, but it doesn't like view that as a sacrifice, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. think that like there's only one true love for somebody yeah. there can be like multiple people who fulfill multiple things. There are uh, so many things about the society woman that would probably cause friction between the two of them over right. time. In many ways, the two thieves are more suited to each other day to day. Um, they just don't have that kind of like spiritual connection, I guess. Yeah. But so at the same time, it recognize it just recognizes that there's not one person for everybody, you know, yeah. there are multiple multitude of people who can satisfy many needs. Yeah. Um, And that just because somebody isn't the best person for you, that doesn't make them the wrong person for you.
0: Right. And this and this idea that I very much agree with, the idea that love is not merely a thing you feel. It is also a thing you do and a choice that you make. And if you are with this and it's if you are with this person. And they're with you, and you both are at the very least okay with that. Then you can probably make it work. It might require a little bit of effort on everybody's part, but then it always does. Yes. Even even if the feeling, if even if you're really led by that feeling initially, eventually, as reference to the uh, uh, French pronunci- pronunciation, the other film, oh, New well, it. New Le Le it. Le yeah. Um, you know, there we have people that genuinely love each other. They're not f- forcing anything they discover as everybody does yeah it takes work yeah um i mean i
1: should say the two thieves aren't forcing anything they're just right bound together by a common practice i guess they're yeah. attracted to each other because of their profession yeah um so yeah
0: that sounds wonderful and it is. having now watched uh, to be or not to be i'm i'm actually quite excited to see yeah it. okay okay here we go top three i believe four top four that was number five that was five okay number four what do we got jacques Demy's the young girls of rochefort I know you've seen it. That is what, I, it, right, okay. Yes. I saw that one. I did not see The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Young Girls of Rochefort, Rochefort, yes, I loved
1: it. I totally adore it. Um, I had seen uh, Umbrellas of Sherbrooke before I saw this one, um, and I wasn't, I'm, I'm still not totally in love with The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. I think it, I have some problems with it. I know it's like the Demi classic, the one that everybody loves, and it, it is great, but I, I was very uncertain about it when I saw it, and then I saw this, and it was like, I need to know everything about this guy. Yeah, um, and have sense. I mean, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I can't stop talking about Jacques me, especially since it's part- quite off-putting. <laughs> especially since Criterion released that box set earlier this year, yeah. I just feel like I need to get out the word that he is an amazing filmmaker. Um, he actually does the ending I was talking about. Been talking about this whole episode very often, but not in this one. This one, he really commits to the very happy, almost ridiculously happy ending. <laughs> does seem a little hyperbolic. <laughs> but at the same time, um the final shot, he there's the two lovers who like have been searching for each other the whole movie and keep mm-hmm. like just missing each other. Yeah. And they finally come together off-screen, you know, you don't mm-hmm. see that the what should be the most rapturous moment of the movie. Yeah. And I love that he keeps like a little
0: tease in there. Yeah. Um well, and I it's almost the acknowledgement, it's almost a horror movie mentality that what you don't <laughs> see in in a horror movie can be scarier than what you do yeah. and that there's this thing that you want you as the audience, you want to happen. Yeah. And by not seeing it, you're able to imagine far more than he could ever show you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what, what else about the film? Uh, maybe describe it a little bit.
1: Okay. Uh, well, it's loosely about these people who come together in this small town called Rochefort, uh, in France. Um, Word on the street is there's, there's some young girls there. Yeah, they okay. are played by real life sisters, um, Catherine Deneuve, and I can never pronounce her sister's name, but uh, it's like Francine d'Orlioc or something. I yeah. I don't know. It's very a very French name. Um, they run a small music school. Their mother runs a small cafe, and it's just kind of about the goings about this town, leading up to like some sort of fair uh, thing in which they're like there's like boys showing off new motorcycles. It's like. Mm-hmm kind of a county fair sort of situation yeah um and there's not much of a plot to it honestly but at the same time there's so many things going on that mm-hmm. there's always something engaging it doesn't feel like kind of just wandering and uh
0: purposeless i'm trying to compare it reminds me of it reminds me of something that i can't exactly put a, put my finger on but there's not a story, there's just relationships. Yeah. Develop, there's developments. Yeah. And the, more than there's a the story.
1: Yeah, so many things happening with those relationships yeah. that still has kind of a dynamic structure to it. Yeah. It's it's his longest movie, but it feels very, you know, a good pace and feels like a good clip. Yeah, there's always something happening. Yeah. Um, most notably of all, just the musical numbers, which are gorgeously shot. Yeah. Um, and so beautifully executed. And I know David has talked about this before in ways that are like somewhat a little off-tempo, like people are a little removed from each other, not totally on the beat. Yeah. Um, but that just makes it kind of flow in all the better
0: away. It makes it seem more organic, I guess, organic and charming. Yeah. There, there's a way that like, if something is, I'll never, I'll never forget. Um, this is certainly not the first time I've thought of this, but, uh, uh, so I, I go to red letter media a lot and I've watched those, uh, star Wars reviews and they're surprisingly insightful. Um, and one thing that, uh, that they talk about at the end of uh, Phantom Menace, the the big fight between Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor and um, Darth Maul. Yeah, uh, of course it's very well choreographed and it's very exciting. It's so well choreographed that it feels a little soulless. Like everything <laughs> is like spot on, right? To the point that it it genuinely feels choreographed, whereas I remember thinking this when I watched the film that it is a little some of the dancers are a little off they 're not always completely in unison, right. which does make it feel more organic it makes it feel it makes it feel more joyous as opposed to you i can 't imagine i mean i can but um, <laughs> i don't i don 't immediately imagine how much work went into this right. to make it so seamless, yeah. Um, it seems like it genuinely, uh, almost like a flash mob, you know? (laughs) Well, and I was going to say the way flash mob of joy, (laughs) the
1: way the, there aren't that many like musical numbers, like properly done musical numbers. Right. So many of the, them are just like. Uh, Thirty-second, minute-long scenes of people just coming together and dancing on the street, yeah. or her walking down the street and people are already dancing. Like it just feels like a natural extension of people's movements. Yeah. So it, it makes all the more sense that
0: they'd be moving the same music, but in slightly different ways. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, a moment ago, I used the word joy, and that is a f- this uh, the way we said that uh, last year. Marion Bod could be not summed up, obviously, but the word haunting yeah. really comes to mind. To me, the word joyful. Oh yeah! As I was watching it, I just I just felt such positive energy. Oh yeah, uh, in myself and yeah. as I was watching the film. And in much the same way, I mean, a lot of it is just through camera
1: movement, uh, the way that people move across screen, you yeah, know, sound and image kind of working together to create this emotion. Yeah, as much as fun as the story is in terms of watching people, you know, slightly miss each other and circumstances collide in such a way that people come together. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of fun to be had there, but the main joy of the movie for me is just uh, the way that people move, the way the camera moves, the colors of their costumes um Mm. is very elemental Um, i do
0: love the use of color in that film too
1: yeah it's like slightly subdued it's not like booming technicolor it feels a little pastel pastel
0: is yeah yeah, feels like easter yes Um, very much so yeah it's it's a wonderful film if you get the opportunity to watch it please uh and you know what even if you don't get the opportunity you make the opportunity (laughs) that's what i say you forge um, your own path it's out on blu-ray <laughs> as i said before and it looks gorgeous yeah i didn't even see it on blu-ray i bet yeah. i bet it is um okay so that was number four yeah number now we're in the top three i know number really three is better be good scott i love it okay. uh, this is uh
1: sofia coppola's lost in translation interesting um, i don't think i knew you liked it that much yeah this is the one that i've I say, I talk a lot about movies that I love as much as anyone can love a movie. I love this more than someone can love a movie because it has such a personal connection for me. Interesting. Um, I saw it when I was, I guess I would have been 17 at the time. Um, it
0: was. Did you learn the truth at 17? Is that a reference to something? I don't know. It's a song. Okay. The love, it um, was, love was meant for beauty queens. Not, not people. <laughs> that's like the truth. <laughs> Apparently. Um, it is the only thing that can be said <laughs> to be true. Um, I
1: guess, in many ways, I did learn a truth at 17. Because it was the first movie I saw, I think, that really made its theme loneliness and melancholy. Mm -hmm. That, like, didn't jazz up, didn't feel the need to make an overwhelmingly happy ending. You know, by the end, they've kind of come together in a way, but are also going apart. And that's okay. And the movie is okay with that. And recognizing that, um, what's the word I want? Kind of a transitiveness in life. um, an impermanence, that's the word I want. Mm -hmm that there can be things that happen in a very concentrated amount of time that have a very powerful effect on you. Yeah. And that you just have to let them go at some point. Yeah. Um, At the time I was coming out of, it wasn't a terribly serious relationship looking back on it, but it felt very serious when I was 17. Yeah. Um, And so I was feeling very lonely, however, uh, improperly, whether I deserved it or not. Uh, It's kind of emotion you can only have when you're 17. Yeah. Um, But the movie really convinced me to forge connections with people in ways that I wouldn't have dared to before. And that, uh, following fall and winter, it came out in like September of 2003. Mm-hmm. And that falling fall and winter was the most impactful time in my life. And I really think that movie was part of that reason in terms of opening me up to different kinds of relationships that not every girl I met had to be somebody I wanted to date. And, um, that I could be more open about myself and that that wouldn't be a sacrifice in some way. No. It taught me I, in a big way that earnestness was a good quality to have. It is odd that that is used as a negative in many ways. I know.
0: I have been beating the drum for it ever since. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for the next several years, you were just a womanizer, just really putting <laughs> yourself out there, just not looking to no, quite tie the, yourself Quite down. the opposite is I was just trying to connect with people
1: and yeah. not like... Uh, and not even just romantically. That's, exactly. That. that yeah. I mean, I became friends with a girl that fall, in much, and I feel that was very reflective of the film mm-hmm. itself, in a way that was very deep and very intimate, but it wasn't romantic. And you were like, constantly
0: whispering not- in her ear and stuff like that. She whispered in mine, Manita, <laughs> <laughs> and she she whispered, "This is never gonna be romantic." <laughs> um, yeah, it is a uh, man. There is something there's a certain kind of genius in that film that I can't, does it ever frustrate you when there's just something inside you about a film that is just almost impossible to put into words? Oh yeah. I mean, I was struggling that with many of the films on this list. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, if I were to talk about night of the hunter, I would describe it and be like, this isn't enough. Yeah. Words aren't enough. Um, and lost in translation is one of those movies that like, when people ask, cause there are plenty of people certainly at the time that said, why is this considered good? Like, yeah. Quote unquote, nothing happens. And it's like, well, yes, I guess so. But in a way, everything happens. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a, and it's not inherently romantic. There's an element of that, but it's not that it's, yeah. in some ways it's bigger than that. Well, they do kind of acknowledge it later in the movie when
1: he sleeps with the lounge singer. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of put off by that. Yeah. Um, in a way that suggests that she thought there was something romantic going on. But at the same time, they
0: like very quickly acknowledge it. Like there wasn't anything really. right, And just like, it doesn't, it implies that, but not even overtly. Exactly. If you want to go a different way, if you want to interpret that a different way, or even just if you do not about want, but even if you do, um, it's there for you. That's one of the neat things about the film is that, there's a lot of stuff you can imprint on that film if you are so inclined. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it winds up being very general, but also very specific at the same time. And yeah, it's about... And you know what? Um, I tend to think of you as the same age as myself. We're fairly close. Fairly right. close. Yeah. But when it comes to something like this... Yeah. Where I you was saw when you were 17, yeah. I was 21. Yeah. You were in high school. I was in college. Now, of course... At this point in our lives, there's basically no difference at all. But And certainly there are films that I saw when I was 16, 17 that changed the way I not merely looked at movies, but sometimes the way I lived my life and approached relationships. But to see a movie like Lost in Translation in high school I fe- and, and at a time when you're sort of malleable – I think not to imply that you people aren't as they get older, but people tend, there's a kind of a stereotype. That you get, you yeah. Get a little set in your ways, but at 17, especially if you're a movie lover at 17 and you're just open to anything and you're eager for it. Yeah. And then loss in translation comes along. And I saw
1: it like at a random Saturday afternoon, I'd been starting to make a habit of going to the movies by myself for the first time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm glad I saw it by myself because I wouldn't have known yeah. what to say to, you know, some buddy of mine.
0: Yeah. And just, uh, yeah, undoubtedly, you know, your buddy would be like, I don't think I got that. <laughs> or that was dumb. Um, or even maybe. if they did, like,
1: like I said, I was still coming into the idea that earnestness and being open about one's feelings was yeah. OK. Like, I don't I think I would have, like, scoffed it off in some way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah and I cuz there there are some films that meant so much to me on a personal level that if somebody scoffed if, if they made fun of the movie I f- I would feel like they were sort of making fun of me and oh, be yeah. like they don't understand this. Yeah. And if they don't understand this, you know what? They may not they may not might not even like me. So, you know what? Get out of here. Um, but yeah, Lost in Translation. And at this point, I assume most of the listeners have seen it. it yeah, is I one didn't of those. bother recapping um, it because I assume. Yeah, but it is. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's very funny yes. on top of everything else. Bill Murray is
1: as great as ever. And for all the reasons yeah. he's come to be great at the time, I remember like people were making a big deal about him being serious. And they're like, there's a small band of people out there who like to see Bill Murray in serious movies. And now it's become like his regular thing. And you know, what's interesting is that
0: did you ever see Razor's edge? No. Okay. Uh, so there's a movie I believe in the forties called Razor's edge starring, I think Tyrone power. And then Bill Murray in the eighties pushed to remake it. That was like supposed to be his biggest serious movie. Yes. Yeah. And basically he, he made an exchange with the uh, the studio. If he would be in Ghostbusters... Interesting. Uh, or I, I'm not sure if it was specifically Ghostbusters, okay. but like, okay, we'll have you on sort of a retainer for a project for the future. Yeah. Which turned out to be Ghostbusters. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, they, they would make this movie for him. And it is... Gen- and in, and that one, it is a serious film in every sense of the word. And I think... And it's not that great of a movie, honestly. That's and what I've heard. He's fine in it. He's yeah. not great... I think he – I think it's it's a problem of youth because he's fairly young there. Yeah. This idea that I want to be serious and the only way to be serious is to be in something that is serious. Or to be intensely serious. Ex- yeah. and it, But it's, he's not intense. Okay. He's not like Sean Penn intense. Okay. But it's just the film is just so damn dour. Hmm. And it just frustrates me. And I think he's doing okay work. But I think once – certainly once he did stuff like Rushmore, yeah. I think he realized – ah, this is the tone in which I can be serious and still be remarkably funny. They're not at odds yeah, at all. Well, he was able to be more relaxed, at, I think, because yeah. of some age. Um, yeah, I think so. He could be
1: just very reflexive on screen. But I, I do think Lost in Translation was really the breaking point. Cause I, oh, like, absolutely. A year or two before he was in Osmosis Jones. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, it's. I, I still think it's his best performance, but I'm very biased because I love the movie so much.
0: I mean— I feel like it's a it's as far as the as far as a certain type of performance. Mm-hmm. I think it's a one two three punch of Rushmore, Lawson translation, Broken Flowers. Yeah, um, we, and I love him in that as well. But oddly enough, I feel like in Broken Flowers he's ta- he takes one more step towards unknowability. Uh, in his performance. That's part of the design of the film. Absolutely. It works very well. Yeah, I love Broken Flowers. Um, But I do think Lost in Translation is sort of the sweet spot between uh, both of those movies and uh, certainly the film. And it is worth noting that he did get an Oscar nomination for it. Um, And that that film actually got a lot of uh, Oscar support. It got, it only won won one award.
1: Or you would expect it in 2003 when Return of the King was (laughs) dominating everything. Um,
0: but yeah and then they gave it the the token oh and uh, a kind of an uh, a film with an indie sensibility yeah <laughs> here's your screenplay oscar even though a lot of that film is actually improvised um yeah it, and it feels like it
1: yeah and right i mean it's the right spirit for the movie i'm glad sophia couple is able to let go a little bit of her screenplay yeah uh, especially for a guy like bill murray who's like so yeah. calm on screen and yeah. like I said the intersection where you could still have the funny lines but still have the moments of quiet where you can read a small changes it in ex- his expression and yeah.
0: that can sell the whole scene yeah man that's a great movie i haven't seen it in a while and i feel like i need to rewatch it um okay so that's number three number two so if that's number three what oh what could be number two <laughs> scott what is it it is uh stanley kubrick's barry linden barry linden one of the only kubrick films i have not seen
1: It was referred to by a friend of mine in college as the Kubrick movie nobody has seen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which was very true in college. Nobody I know (laughs) had seen it. Um, I eventually just saw it because I felt like I needed to see all his movies, especially Mm -hmm. the later work. Um, You know, I didn't see like Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire. I only saw like in the last year or so. Right. Um, But so I ended up watching Barry Lyndon, which is a famously gorgeous movie. You know, what I've seen,
0: it is beautiful. It's
1: breathtaking. And there's, you know, shots meant to replicate like paintings of the period it's a very well thought out movie so i watched of course my 19 inch television <laughs> of course in college dorm <laughs> where else would you see it yeah um so i but i still there was something about it that was still like speaking to me there was a certain pretty much any time if you're watching like a long enough movie that really goes through the course of a person's life yeah. um and does it with a remote sense of honesty i'm gonna end up liking it at least a little bit because mm-hmm. you feel like you've gone on a journey with that person um in this case it's about a guy who rises up Um, his father is killed in a duel in a very funny opening scene for such a dour movie. Um, it has a remarkably sharp sense of humor. Hmm. Um, and he eventually rises through the ranks, um, from, he was, uh, Irish, but he rises through British ranks, which, you know, taking place in, I want to say this 18th century or so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a big deal. Um, but he eventually starts to cheat people, cheat on his wife, cheat himself, you know, it's the very classic, you know, rise and fall story. Um, but Kubrick approaches it with, like I said, that kind of sense of humor and the sense of remove that he's very famous for yeah. and kind of lends an arch quality to it that then makes the scenes that are, Um, there's one scene in particular that everyone who's seen it knows where he switches to handheld camera. It's just like completely wild. It's like something out of Clockwork Orange. Hmm. Um, and that scene like jumps all the more and becomes all the more like kind of horrifying for it. Hmm. Um, whereas a scene that was just, would just be like, Big pronouncements and uh, you know, big speeches about all he's gained and lost or whatever. It wouldn't yeah. quite make, leave the same mark, but because he switch makes that aesthetic switch, you get feel it all the more. And even though he has that sense of remove, the tragedy still comes through loud and clear to me. Yeah, uh, the time I really fell in love with, of course, seeing it on the big screen um, when you can be overpowered by the imagery. But I think the emotional honesty is there in a way that isn't always there with Kubrick, even though I do love Kubrick. I've kind of struggled with him at some times. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, as have I.
1: Yeah. But a few of his films, I love intensely and Berlin
0: Lyndon is top among them. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you're right. It is the film that even Kubrick fans haven't seen for some reason. And including me, like I have no doubt that I'll love it. Uh, it, it, it sounds like I tend to like that kind of languid pace. Yeah. Um, for, for reasons I can't quite figure out, by the way. Um, and just, especially if it's paired with a certain coldness, like I tend to like a languid pace because it allows the actors to really explore, but this of course is a Kubrick film. So it's a bit, it's kind of pulled back and very restrained. Um, cause I have seen clips from it here and yeah, yeah. Uh, in film school, but, um, and at that Kubrick exhibit, you went to that, I assume, yes. right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. Anytime a filmmaker makes something that seems like it wouldn't fit cause he made this, he made it right after Clockwork Orange, right? Yeah. Well, he was. A, a few a, years after. Yeah.
1: Right after for Kubrick, anyway. <laughs> right, right. It was only four years. So <laughs> yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. Um, but he was going to make Napoleon very famously. Right. Um, which I, like a lot of Kubrick fans, I often wonder what that would be like. But I realized that if we'd gotten Napoleon, we wouldn't have gotten a Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Because he just took the same research, basically, and applied it to that. Okay. Um, so I'm kind of glad Napoleon didn't work out because we got this
0: unusual film as a result. And. What, and after Barry Lyndon, was that The Shining? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's wedged between these two. Wedged. Again, <laughs> there's a lot of space in between. But, um, but it's in between these two films that are iconic Kubrick films that yeah. every Kubrick fan would watch. And so, you know, Strange Love, 2001, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, Clockwork, like all these films that Kubrick fans love including The Killing and Paths of Glory right. and all that. This is the one that, when fans talk about it, people tend to ask, well, why Why did it even make that film? Like, I hear it's this, this, and this. Like, they wind up being kind of almost complaining about it, almost like they feel like they have to do homework. Um, well, period pieces tend to be approached that way, unfortunately. I guess so. And because, it's, because you know, it's a film that is, and of course, I haven't seen it, but it doesn't sound particularly edgy. No, uh, compared to the film that precedes it and the not film even that's after. especially compared to yeah. those two. Yeah. And so but I do find myself in the same way, probably in a number of ways. Uh, I find myself thinking of Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. I can see the comparison um, in that. I love Mike Lee. And then when I saw Mr. Turner, a film of his that I don't love, mm-hmm. I don't dislike it by any stretch. I think it's gorgeous and I think it was a lot of great acting, but I find it mostly, uh, I believe I said impenetrable in our last episode. Right. Um, but bec- But I have so much faith in the filmmaker that I feel like, all right, it is now up to me to figure out why he even wanted to tell this story. And I feel like as a Kubrick fan, I feel like, anybody who hasn't seen it they have an obligation not merely to to watch it um obligation is not the word responsibility i think they have a responsibility and they owe it to themselves as fans to watch it and if they don't understand immediately why he wanted to make it then part of me is like oh now the fun's beginning because (laughs) now you can ask why would he want to make this film i mean do you think it's I mean, I'm sure it's not merely the consolation prize to not being able to make Napoleon.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, that was the period where he stopped giving as many interviews. So it's becomes harder to kind of figure yeah. out why he wanted to do a given thing at a given time, Wonderful. especially for a film like that, that not a lot of people are as interested in as like the shining or something Yeah, where people have researched it intensely and, you know, made documentaries about weird interpretations about it. Yeah. So there's not as much out there about Barry Lyndon, unfortunately. Um, but my sense of it is that it's so in keeping with his sense of like analyzing man's folly and, Mm -hmm. uh, the way people self aggrandize and ultimately feel, I mean, that's like what the killing is basically about ultimately. No, it's, he tells the story again and again of people aspiring, but for the wrong reasons and getting blinded by ego and, um, in a way that I understand like the remove some people find condescending, but again, to me, it just makes it all the more impactful um, because he's not like so in love with uh, he's not as in love with the characters. I guess he's able to let them make the mistakes let their folly be the subject of the movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I got to see it. Everybody. And I, should, and I should probably see it
1: on Blu-ray. Yeah. It's, well, it's finally on Blu-ray for years. It wasn't, and you had to watch it on a, bad dvd no. um, but yeah i mean if you can see it in theaters do but if not the blu-ray is very good okay
0: all right Lost in translation you loved yes barry linden you loved even more i can't imagine <laughs> you loving any film more than barry linden and yet here we are here we are at number one you've seen a bunch of movies i think so the other day you saw big eyes That's not number one. You love this movie more than Big Eyes. Shocking, I know. (laughs) Um, So now I will ask you, Scott, what's your number one favorite film?
1: It is Terrence Malick's The New World, specifically the extended cut. Okay, which I have not seen. Okay. Um, The theatrical cut is very, very, very good. I saw it originally when it came out and... It became very fast in contention to be my favorite film of all time. That was mm-hmm. the time when you know my favorite film was very much in flux. Yeah. Um, and it does most much of what the extended cut does, uh, but it focuses more on the romance between Pocahontas and John Smith, which is the central story of the movie. Is. Right. But it the movie is called the New World for a reason, and what the extended cut does more is just focus on the time period and the nature of these civilizations not necessarily warring but just coming into natural conflict Mm -hmm. um which he achieves very simply towards the start where uh the native americans are just hanging out doing their thing and then they just see these ships just coming on shore yeah and because of the way he frames i mean malik isn't like the most careful framer you know he keeps a very loose camera especially these days um but it, it's such a good framing to just show like the strangeness of these ships suddenly arriving at your shore. Yeah. <laughs> and being like, We're here, we're setting up camp. We're gonna, you know, set up a whole civilization. Yeah. Um and so it really gets at a very tenuous relationship between the two. Some people have accused it of being like too, you know, the noble savage stereotype. Um, which I think is there somewhat. Malik has a natural love for nature, of yeah. course, as many people pointed out. So I think his sympathies are more aligned with those. And not wrongly, they were the people who were basically wiped out by yeah. the white people coming in. Um, so I, I don't feel Easy like. Easy there, hippie. <laughs> Joking everybody. Uh, I don't feel like that's the worst emphasis to place on a no. movie
0: um, to sympathize with the people who are later oppressed. And you know, there's a difference because I have I have seen the theatrical cut of of the New World, yeah. and I re- I really responded to it. I would say I loved it. Um, I'm just, I would say is it it's probably my third favorite Ma- uh, Malik film behind okay. Thin Red Line and Tree of Life. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, there, the noble savage thing. There's a difference between looking at. Native Americans, or like people that live quote unquote a simpler life. It's one thing to look at that and say, you know, everybody, they got it right. <laughs> I wish I could live like them. I'm not going to, incidentally, but I <laughs> wish I could. There's a difference between that and trying to see the world through their eyes it, with a sympathetic look. Yeah. And knowing full well that these people are about to be hurt in a way that they in no way brought on themselves. Right. I, I think there's a notable difference. And I think he does very much the latter
1: yeah and he does like acknowledge kind of the strangeness at times of their culture especially when they kidnap john smith and are about to kill him like mm-hmm. that's kind of a freaky scene yeah and you can get you know why people were unnerved about them um but at the same time like this uh he has one scene where a native american just picks up a tool and goes off to use it and he gets shot in the back mm-hmm. and you realize in that moment like the very intense and ingrained difference between these cultures that's never yeah. going to completely work
0: yeah um and by the way like images like that are resonant yes uh with today yes
1: you know um which i i don't think he's terribly conscious of but nevertheless is there
0: i don't think yeah i don't think he's meaning to do it but i think he's doing something that is inherently universal that's something yeah. that will the 60s like he made it you know, in 2005, yeah, I don't think he's trying to echo anything, but oddly enough, he winds up doing something that everyone can point to in their time and say, Hey, that's like this news story that happened uh, a year ago or something like that.
1: Um, and I I do think placing Pocahontas at the center of the movie, as much as, you know, Colin Farrell is a big movie star. It is her movie. Oh yeah. Um, he eventually drops out of the picture almost altogether. Yeah. Um, but by placing her at the center of the story, you know, she's, uh, Native American at heart, but is drawn into the white culture. Yeah. And so she you know, it's not like his empathies are totally aligned. He recognizes in many ways, you know, the structural integrity of the buildings they create and mm-hmm. and especially when she goes to England, the wonder of their culture when seen through a different set of eyes. Yeah, The fact that, especially in the Extending Cut, which we sit for like two hours in the Virginia camp before even going to England and then to experience that kind of shift, yeah, it just you, you sense how overwhelming such a, to us banal scene would be to somebody who had never seen a city before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the transitory nature of her relationship with John Smith and the way he just abandons her, but the way she can then fall in love with somebody again, it speaks yeah. to a lot of what I've been talking about. It's uh, a Christian, yes, it yes. Christian Bale. Yes, it is Christian Bale who is, you know, B- co-built is like the second star, but then doesn't come until like yeah. the last third of the movie in typical Malick fashion. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the way that, um, you can fall in love with somebody again who isn't – it's not as powerful or as immediate a connection as that first love. Right. But it is still just as deep and just as reassuring and just mm-hmm. warm and caring. And there's nothing wrong with having a different relationship
0: that is equally meaningful but in different ways. Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about because uh, – I mean, I feel terrible because I haven't – I saw the film once on DVD, unfortunately – And I feel like certainly that's not the way to watch it Uh, on, on a small, a fairly small TV. I mean, I've only seen it once in theaters and the extended cut only on Blu-ray. Yeah. I I feel like it is a film I should probably invest in um, because uh, it never hurts to revisit Malick. Um, But the thing that I, I was really into watching, uh, I think Ebert and Roper at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and even now I go back and watch old episodes of Siskel and Ebert and it's just amazing. And the thing that, ebert always talked about that he liked in movies that he didn't see very much anymore was a sense of awe yes and the new world has a sense of awe to the extent that so many movies including the animated pocahontas so many movies would would look back with complete hindsight Knowing full well that well we we've seen ships before, so let's just get to the story. Let's just get to what you know we a story that we want to see depicted by these movie stars and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, Malik, who always who's always been able to look at things in a different way, one could say a fresh way, almost like a newborn baby. <laughs> um, I mean, that's in a good way, by the yes. way. I'm not insulting him. Um, he manages to look at not merely like to look at the ships. And just think, if you've never seen one, how strange would it be to see this giant thing just show up <laughs> out of nowhere? Um, like you—you you didn't even necessarily know that there was anywhere to come from. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the some of the uh, like like John Smith and some of the uh, the English uh, characters seeing how beautiful nature is and all that, but also some of them not totally able to embrace it the way John Smith is yeah. and with Pocahontas, but then also it being through her point of view and then recognizing that. And I think this, I think this is why the noble savage thing doesn't work out. Uh, why, why it doesn't hold water is because when she goes to England, yeah, that's what I was, yeah. It's like, she sees that there's awe in that too. Yeah. Like it's a film that welcomes you to look at everything around you. Yes and marvel at it which i think he's focused on more and more ever
1: since then i mean especially and people often talk about the scenes at like the laundromat or the sonic into the wonder yeah (laughs) and it's like the most banal scenes in the world that he makes like completely
0: (laughs) overwhelming and you know it's it's interesting i've i uh i have heard malik referred to uh as a christian um, I don't know if he is or not. I don't know how much he identifies as that. Um nobody can. He doesn't give interviews. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um but it's I, I uh I probably yeah, okay. So I know somebody that has worked on a few oh, okay at this point. Um and has met Terry and that can, and has talked with with him and that yeah. sort of thing. And so um and she said that uh that he I don't know, remember if he specifically said, I'm a Christian or anything like that, or he just said he was drawn to that and he identifies with this, this, this. But what I what I said about Tree of Life, and oddly enough, what I've said about Robert Altman's Nashville, mm-hmm. is that uh, these are films that seem to almost be taking God's point of view, um, both in how, specifically for Nashville with me, how it looks at humanity. It sees a bunch of people it sees humanity as a whole but also individuals and it has a great deal of affection for them while also recognizing that they can be silly and right. tragic all at the same time and i think malik is able to do that um with characters to a certain extent but also with everything looking at the world in general and finding to put it in genesis terms find you know observing that it is good yeah you know and yes it can be perverted it can be screwed up and all that but inherently it is good and it it invites us to look at it that way i'm sorry i've been talking more about this film than you have i
1: apologize no i mean i've said most of the general things i mean the biggest thing is that i just like the way he sees the world i mean Mm. from a camera standpoint certainly but also just his absolute earnestness which as we talked about um in approach he doesn't there's very little humor in his films Mm -hmm. maybe none after badlands i'm not sure um but
0: he yeah not really he's
1: somehow his seriousness works in a way it doesn't often work for other filmmakers for me um maybe because he has a background in philosophy and in religion Mm -hmm. that he's able to bring to the film that it's not just like it doesn't feel like it's only his musings it feels like it's a collection of things that he's gathered throughout his life that he's refundling through this one story Mm -hmm. um and I, I think the way he's able to mix that earnestness with a grander sense of impermanence, which I talked about, um, and just the transitory nature of life and that he's not so earnest that like in the Perks of Being a Wallflower kind of way, where he's so earnest that like yeah. he's just in love with the characters. So he wants the best for them. He's willing for there to be sadness because there's sadness in life. And yeah.
0: that uh, And then there can be beauty even in that. Of yes, course, it's unfortunate, but but. Almost, it's almost like that—that that idea of you know, uh, truth is beauty, and that and truth, the truth can be sad sometimes, but there's an inherent beauty in it because it's what's real. It's what we all experience. Yeah, you said it very well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It, that's. <laughs> i do feel like i want to watch it now but now it, pro- it is now midnight so yeah, it probably wouldn't not be the, the best, best idea. idea um yeah so what i will say is uh you know now that we have looked over these 10 mm-hmm. um it is interesting to look at what they all have in common because if you don't mind a little uh little armchair psychology no, here bring it on um I think you need serious help. No, that's that's <laughs> not. It. Um, that there is a bittersweet quality to it. There's an in in a lot of these films. There's an acknowledgement that yes, life can be hard, and sometimes things don't go your way, and sometimes you lose people, and sometimes you can never get things back that brought you happiness and joy. But you were able to experience that happiness and joy. And what's interesting is as I look as I look at these films, even the films that I haven't seen, but the way you've described them. There does seem to be an undercurrent of hope there, which yeah. I think is any film that kind of has a bittersweet ending. It's like, yeah, it's like eh, things aren't that great, but they could be again. There's not a great deal of finality to, but the, also, to like the negative endings of, of these films. And I don't even like to call them negative endings. Yeah, but in some ways it's saying that there already is positivity, you know, if you right.
1: just look at this in a slightly different way or are willing to accept that you're not going to get the exact same experience
0: that you got before. Exactly. But this new experience is great, too. Yeah, it's all it's it is all a part of it. And like and if you try to hold on to any one thing, then you're you might actually miss something else that has come along. Yes, absolutely. And you're and it's entirely possible you're you are meant to experience both of them at the same time but you're so focused on this one thing yeah that uh, or making sure you know making sure that you don't lose this thing yes um yeah so that's that's a, a thing that I that I find in almost like pulling joy or not even happiness because that sounds a little bit too uh surfacey like contentedness and joy and mm-hmm. hope out of despair and sadness but still acknowledging that they're there and allowing yourself to feel those things yeah so that's very that's that's very interesting this is a very good top 10 and i certainly know that there are movies that sound good to me and listener i hope that you have uh, at the very least gotten some you've gotten to know scott a little bit let's hope so and uh and you've gotten some some pretty great recommendations out of this as well so i think we will end this episode it it, it did indeed go on for a while but that's okay oh well um so yeah, listener, you can uh, get us at battleshippretention.com. There are a lot of new reviews. Uh, basically, every like every other day at this point, there's a review of like a big movie that people are anticipating. Yeah, it's the time of the season where David and I are going to quite a few. Absolutely, screenings. I'm I'm trying to go to a couple here and there myself. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, you can find that at battleshippretention.com. You can follow me. Oh, geez, I don't know how David <laughs> does this. You can follow David at the Pretension. You can follow me at tyler pretension uh on twitter uh you can also email me at tyler at battleship com. you can email david david at battleship you can follow us on facebook uh there's probably other things as well there's other podcasts in the fleet and i think that is it i won't talk about the lord of the rings commentary right now although i guess i just did you can buy it for 10 bucks um scott where can people find you online in addition to battleship at criterioncast.com and on twitter at rail of tomorrow at Rail of Tomorrow. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Hope hopefully you enjoyed the uh, the episode. Scott, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, and we'll get you next time. Bye.